Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. Before we get into this episode with Megan Driving Hawk, I want to share another artist as the featured teaching artist this week. So Amanda Nadig, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, has been teaching for 21 years in Chicago public schools, but has gotten serious about her art making just in the last year. And she is on fire. She currently has a solo show at Ampersand in Logan Square in Chicago and is included in a group textile show at the Portrait Society Gallery in Milwaukee. I loved hearing this quote from her. While listening to your podcast interviews, it is really neat being able to think more closely how my work influences the work of my high school students and how they influence mine. I love that. Thank you, Amanda, for sharing that. I really love hearing any feedback about the podcast. Amanda Nadig is a textile artist who finds inspiration in keeping with and breaking away from traditions in quilting. Each uniquely composed quilt combines colors, textures, and patterns from found textiles. Her artwork is the perfect metaphor for our current quarantined lives finding comfort and beauty in the otherwise overlooked scraps of our everyday lives. Using materials previously destined for the waste bin with innovative techniques, Amanda creates works that feel simultaneously historic and contemporary. To me, her quilts feel like abstract paintings, but so full of the texture of handwork. Check out our blog post for more about her work. And I'll also be sharing her work this week on Instagram. You can find Amanda at amandanadig, N-A-D-I-G dot com or amandanadigart on Instagram. Would you like to be a featured artist? Apply at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. We also have an open call available right now for our winter juried exhibition, It will be juried by the incredible artist and teacher, Chloe Alexander, and you can listen to her interview in episode 11. I also wanted to let you know that I will not be releasing a new episode next week. I'm taking a week off to give myself a little more time to celebrate Halloween and my husband's birthday with my family. There's been a lot of costume prep over here, despite not being able to do the usual trick-or-treating. Okay, now on to this week's episode. It was so wonderful connecting with Megan Driving Hawk. We spoke about teaching and art making, being white mothers of Indigenous and Latinx kids, and early motherhood. Megan shared her experience of postpartum complications, which may be slightly graphic for young ears, just a little warning. I find her work so beautiful and deeply meaningful. 
The way she talked about her interest in the meeting place of science and faith, how truth lives in the overlap between these seemingly contradicting things, felt so connected to her series of double exposures. Megan Drivinghawk is an artist, mother, and educator living in Phoenix, Arizona. She's in her eighth year of teaching and third year of teaching traditional darkroom photography, which includes beginning advanced commercial and advanced placement 2D photography. She has taught pre-kindergarten through adult classes in drawing and painting, sculpture, film studies, digital photography, and art journaling. Driving Hawk also serves as the campus Indigenous Student Advisor. She received her BFA in Fine Art Photography and M.Ed. in Secondary Education with a K-12 Art Certification from Arizona State University. She also earned her MFA in Interdisciplinary Studies from the University of Hartford. Driving Hawk asks questions and seeks connections to the divine, her ancestors, her husband's ancestors, her family, her communities, and her environments through the practices of photography, poetry, and various forms of traditional needlework. She challenges historical, cultural, familial, and personal expectations of herself as she continuously navigates her journey as a white wife and mother to Lakota men. Additionally, she contemplates the delicate weavings of life, death, decay, hope, and what gets left behind in the transition into motherhood and postpartum. Driving Hawk is curious about how one person's expression of life and self-discovery connect to another, and how different basic human life experiences are from one another. After spending a childhood of blocking out life, she now wants to be present to feel and savor where she is in the world as she heals generational and childhood wounds. I am super excited to be talking with Megan Drivinghawk, and I like to start just with backgrounds. So maybe if you could talk me through sort of your story, how you became an artist and a teacher, and if one came first. Yeah. So thank you for having me. I'm super excited yeah. to be here. I probably have listened to every episode of the podcast. Uh, except I love it. Three that have just been released. So super excited. Actually listened to one on my way to work today. Oh, yay. <laughs> thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I used to think that my first love was dance, but it was actually poetry. Whenever I sit down to look at my childhood, mm-hmm. it's really, it's been poetry. I used to sit at my desk as a child to write poetry. And I used to sit, my desk was in front of my window in my room and had all of my little treasures that I had picked up from outside sitting along the window. And I specifically remember bringing my poetry to school, writing it, not for class, but for like my personal enjoyment when we would have movie days, like all of those days leading up to a fall break or a spring break, we'd have a movie day so that the teachers could grade. And so I'd bring my poetry and I'd sit there and write my poetry. And I haven't really stopped writing poetry since. And I've only recently really begun to own the title of poet, though. So Ah. that's kind of interesting. I never got to take a visual arts class in high school because I got kicked out of the one that I tried to take. Ah. The class was full and the instructor asked us to basically self-select and nobody decided that they were going to go take another class. So he just kind of picked out all the athletes and said, okay, you guys have to go find another class. And 
Mm. I ran track and cross country in high school and was in color guard in the band. And I guess that meant I wasn't allowed to take visual art or any arts. Unfortunately, I didn't actually take an art class until I was in college. So that had me very self-conscious through Mm -hmm. all of the art classes that I took because everybody else around me was so, they just had so much more knowledge than I did. I was really Mm -hmm. such a baby and I was starting super fresh and I was like legitimately learning from scratch everything that they, and I was just soaking it all in. Yeah. But when I was a sophomore in high school, I went to San Francisco for my uncle's wedding and I was taking pictures of things that I thought were interesting. And his wedding photographer approached my mom and gave her her business card. She told my mom that I needed to contact her because she thinks that I'm a photographer. And I just kind of like latched on to that. Uh, that so that like yeah. just having somebody who believed in me after being kicked out of an art class and then somebody who didn't know me at all be like hey I can see the way that you're looking at the world and I think that you're a photographer so I just like I latched onto it and also my family uh, both sides of my family I just watched them document our family all the time with Mm -hmm. a camera and so it's kind of stereotypical for a photographer to say that they grew up with their families photographing and documenting but it's kind of what happened my great-grandmother gave me my first camera when I was in elementary school and it was a film camera super basic I still have it Uh. and I just have never looked back like that I was just so and I think that was actually the camera that I was using when I was photographing at my uncle's wedding and so it was super old because if I had gotten it in elementary school (laughs) and then I was using it in high school it was like super old I couldn't change any of the functions I didn't even know how to do that then I was just looking at the world in my view because it was always so different than those around me and yeah I was like wow somebody believes in that somebody can see that like somebody sees me and hears me and I don't even know them yeah so I decided I applied to one school in Pennsylvania and I applied to Arizona State University (laughs) I knew that and I'm from Pittsburgh Pennsylvania so I applied to one in Pittsburgh. And I applied to, I basically only applied to two. So then I applied to um, ASU in Phoenix and I got accepted to both. I actually got a scholarship to Point Park University, which is where I had applied to in Pittsburgh, but I really wanted to go to ASU and I didn't get any kind of scholarship to ASU. But my mom was like, you need to go and find yourself and Mm. learn who you are separate from your family. So you need to go. And so she kind of like, you know, pushed me out the door in a loving way, of course. And I'm so glad that she did because my life would be completely different had I not been able to have that choice. Um, yeah. So I ended up going to ASU and shout out to my best friend, who was also <laughs> the maid of honor at my wedding. She, if it hadn't been for her, she was my roommate, my sweet mate. And it hadn't been for her. I was so homesick. I missed family. I loved family. I love my family. I'm such a family person, um, which is interesting that that's what my artwork is about. But I, I was just so homesick and she just Mm -hmm. scooped me up and her, some of her family lived in Tucson, Arizona, which is like an hour-ish to two hours south. 
and we would go visit her family and she would take me um, to her family gatherings during the holidays. And that just, you know, really, I mean, we're still best friends. There's, you know, that was so important to me and definitely what kept me here. And ultimately I met my husband here and I got my master's here and then we lived here. We moved away and we came back. So, and his family is here. So I just am so thankful to her because I, you know, my life would be completely different. So, um, I graduated and immediately got my dream job working at a photography gallery that had an educational component to it. And it held workshops and I would be in contact with the local high schools and the local high schools would come in and I'd give them tours of our shows and I would do summer workshops for teens. And I realized that I didn't want to be the person that they came to and only spent like an hour with. I wanted to be the person that came with them. Hmm. I wanted to be that person that got to spend all day with them and to develop those relationships with them. So I decided to go back to school and get my master's in education. Um, fun fact, the I was trying to figure out if I wanted to do a master's in art education or if I wanted to do a master's in secondary education, but be certified K through 12. And so one was through the art school and the other one was through the education school. Mm. And I was really trying to figure out because I, you know, I believe that you need to know something about art. (laughs) (laughs) You need to know something about art in order to teach it. Yeah. And I, so what I ended up doing is, or what I ended up doing was I took a little, um, like an info session for each of them. And then ultimately, this is going to get a little dark. Um, my grandmother passed away when I was in the info session for mm-hmm. the education college, and I took that as my sign. And so mm-hmm. I went that route, and I got my master's in secondary ed with the certification K through 12. And I really do think that it was the best choice. I I took it wasn't great for my bank account, but I took some extra classes in the art ed department, and that's how I met my mentor who was ultimately who I student taught with and then ultimately who knew the person at the school that I got my first job with where I am now. So it was good that I took those extra classes and then I also think that it was good that I went through this other direction. So many things in and out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I started right off uh, teaching high school intro to art, sculpture, drawing and painting, film studies, digital photography. And it was all great, but I I really went to school so that I could teach traditional darkroom photography. And mm-hmm. the school that I was teaching at already had an awesome darkroom photography teacher. And so I, I taught there for two years. My husband got accepted to med school. So we moved to Missouri, small, teeny, tiny town, Kirksville, Missouri. Oh, yeah. Um, and... So he was in med school there. We were there. I was there for two years. And then the person at my previous high school, the one that I had left, the traditional photography teacher was leaving and she recommended me for the position and the department had already knew me and the admin already knew me. I mean, we interviewed and there were multiple people who interviewed. And so it wasn't like I just got the job, which isn't what I would have wanted anyways. Um, But it does help that they... 
they know how I teach and they know how right. I conduct my classroom. Uh, and then it's also helpful for the person leaving to be like, this is the person I recommend. Right. Really yeah. Uh, so I ended up moving back to Arizona. I moved in with my in-laws and my husband stayed in Missouri for that last year of education. And I just really focused on the curriculum. I kind of stopped making art that year because when we were in Missouri for two years, I got my master's in fine arts. So mm -hmm. I was working like eight part-time jobs. I was, <sighs> oh, it was, it was so tough. <laughs> yeah. It was so tough. I was working eight part-time jobs, uh, two of which were uh, preschool through eighth grade art Ooh. on a cart. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I understand art on a cart. I completely get it. We had this huge storeroom of supplies and such that all the teachers shared. So if I made a lesson, that material might not be there whenever I got there uh, in the morning. To, oh. So that was always a little difficult. So I would always try to like pre-plan and put it on my cart before. And mm -hmm. of course, I'd have this big sign that, you know, this is, this is Dragon Hawk's <laughs> cart, cart, cart. <laughs> please be gentle, please be nice. Um, so, and that was great. I am so happy to be back in high school. Like, I just, I, I hear teachers say this all the time, that each grade has their, you know, wonderful qualities, and they do. I just, I definitely function better as a teacher in high school. Mm hmm um, well, I think it's good to know which wow. grades you gravitate towards. If there are, you know, some people do like them all, but if you don't, <laughs> it's good to know which ones work best for you. And I'm really thankful that I have that experience where I have taught pre-K through adult. And I know, mm -hmm. I, I know that I work better with high school. And it's, it's just that my patience level, now that I'm a mom, especially, I think my patience level for the, you know, Susie doesn't like me or Susie said <laughs> that she's not my friend today. And then two minutes later, they're playing together on the playground. And I just spent like <laughs> five minutes trying to tell you why. Yeah. So I, I struggle with that. I struggle with that right there. Yeah. I'm kind of in that struggle with my daughter right now <laughs> with oh, our, yeah. our neighbor friends that are like the only children we have contact with right now. Oh, no. Yeah, there's so much of the just little kids yeah. trying to figure out how to be humans together. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and that's exactly what it is. And I think my problem is that I know I need to have patience, and I know that this is a phase that they're going through, and it's normal, it's natural, they need to work through it. But I'm like, I just don't have time. <laughs> I, just, I just don't have time. So yeah. I, I know that there are better people to do it. So after I moved back, I started, so this is my third year in my current position teaching mm -hmm. traditional photography at, at the high school level, which I love. I can have anywhere from ninth grade to 12th grade in one classroom. Mm -hmm. I'm teaching uh, beginning, advanced, commercial, and AP. So that's really exciting. Yeah. I'm also the Indigenous Student Club advisor. And then we did for the last couple of years have a youth equity stewardship team. But mm -hmm. I don't know. Everything with that got a little... Um, some teachers and students don't believe that the youth equity team should be a thing on campus. And mm -hmm. 
they have taken it to, and it's not just our campus, it's all campuses that have this youth equity team. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just, this all happened before everything happened this summer. And so it just feels like a continuation of struggle in the classroom and with these students who want to, you know, they want to have these events and they want to do these cultural uh, events on campus. And I want to be there to support them. And yeah, it just kind of, it, it's it really icky. So basically what I'm trying to say is I don't know if it still exists anymore because I went on maternity leave. Oh, there's our bell. <laughs> I went on maternity leave and then that ran right into quarantine. And then that ran right into the summer Mm -hmm. and we're still just, you know, dealing with the virus and that seems to be on the back burner right now. So I don't know what's going on with it, unfortunately. Yeah, that's the timing of it all is, is complicated too. Yeah. Yeah. Like if they were kind of pushing for it to be dissolved or or sort of gotten rid of right before. Yeah. Yeah. And the kids, like, they want the exact opposite, especially mm-hmm. because what has happened through the summer, they are just ready to to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I guess art came first, and then I realized I wanted to be a teacher, so I made that happen. And then I continued that by getting my, my MFA, which was really important before becoming a mom. Mm-hmm. And we kind of did that on purpose. Yeah, that you finished your degree before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I look back and I think, like, I don't know how I would have parented while getting my degree. Because I have no idea. And I I see parents doing it, but yeah. I just working eight part time jobs, and then Mm. my husband in med school, and I mean, it's he's he's a fourth year now, which means he's got one foot out the door to being a doctor in his mm-hmm. year and you know we're making it work now because every month he has a different schedule so some months mm. he's gone for 14 hours a day and it's just me and mm. then sometimes and I shouldn't say that we live with my in-laws and they help so much and my mom has been a part of our quarantine group she moved here in November and she's been a part of um, our quarantine group to you know help me not be at home alone, you know, with, yeah, and, and, and give me that, that space to come back to be a teacher. I expected to take six weeks of maternity leave and I ended up taking six months. (sighs) Yeah. And that happened. Did you, you gave birth before quarantine, but it was it relatively right before because my mom and my husband were able to be in the room and we didn't have to wear masks and it was a beautiful wonderful experience and I'm so lucky and I'm so thankful uh he was born on February 1st Uh, my birthday is the second so Ah, (laughs) I wanted him to be born on the second because then it would have been 2 2 20 Uh, yeah but then he came on his own time which is fine (laughs) let him be his own being and that was his due date so that kind of tells you what kind of little one he's gonna be Uh, yeah uh yeah but having to take a lot more time uh, yeah and it was great I, i am so thankful it's you know icky that it had to do 
it was because of the virus that I got mm-hmm. so much time with him. And I'm so thankful that I got so much time with him. But by the end of the six months, I was mentally ready to be out of the house. And I don't know yeah. if that has to do with being in quarantine or if that had to do with being at home with the baby. And I won't mm-hmm. know. Like, I'll never know because this is my first baby and these two things kind of meshed together to create my experience of early motherhood. Yeah. And so I don't, sometimes I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know what it's, what it's caused by. I don't Mm -hmm. know what it stems from. Yeah. It's such a sort of turbulent time. And I feel like for me anyway, early motherhood, regardless of what else is going on in the world, was also sort of a turbulent time. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Yes. And I ended up, this might be graphic for some people, but I I had a second degree tear at birth Mm. and I ripped my stitches. I'm pretty sure I ripped them when we were in the hospital. But no one would look at me. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> Even though I was asked, I was being, I was asking the nurses, the postpartum nurses. I, I loved. Okay, so I loved labor and delivery. It was the best experience. And then it like that experience dropped off as soon as I went to postpartum, and mm. it was not the best experience. And I asked if my stitches, because they hurt and they were like, Oh honey, you know, like, of course you just gave birth. And I was like, but I'm telling you that I know my body and that there's something wrong mm-hmm. and they still wouldn't look at my stitches. And so it wasn't until I think it was two or three days after we came home with the baby. I, I asked my husband, I was like, can you look at my stitches? And he was like, uh. I would rather you go to your doctor. <sighs> And I was like, I don't want to scar you. And he's like, that's not it. It's I, I want you to be seen by a health professional. So mm-hmm. I called my doctor and they got me in right away. <clears throat> and she, the doctor, <laughs> this might be graphic. She described, she described what she saw as an angry vagina. Ugh. And I was like, you know, what's interesting is I, I think I'm getting used to the pain because I thought about not coming in this morning because I can just deal with it. Mm-hmm. I thought I can just deal with it. And she was like, no, you, we, this needs addressed. And so it was just like a bounce bouncing back and forth between doctors. And I ended up having to see a specialist who said um, that I wouldn't have to have surgery, that I was starting to heal myself which was great. But then when I went to my final checkup, he was like, well, you're healed too high and you're going to have um, complications if you try to deliver again, if you try Uh. to deliver vaginally again. So I was like, well, crap. (laughs) So then I ended up having to have the surgery, which was in the middle of March. Oh, yeah. The very last day that we, that I could have had a support person. So it's the very last day that the hospital was allowing one support person in. Uh, Wow. Yeah. And I just, I, I don't even, I don't. So whenever they took away that option for people, Mm. I just couldn't. I just was such a, I I just, I can't imagine number one, birthing by myself. I can't imagine recovering from surgery by myself being like, 
my husband was there to hear everything that they said because I was mm-hmm. so looped up on everything that they gave me for the pain that I don't even remember what they said to do after I got home. My husband right. had to be the one to be there. To, so I just, I don't know how people are doing it right now. Uh, yeah. On top of everything else, it's so, uh, so tough. Yeah. That was sidetracked. Sorry. (laughs) No, I mean, I feel like maybe it is graphic for some people who haven't been through it, but I feel like it's so many mothers deal with maybe not this exact issue, but like so many mothers deal with issues that are not talked about. And, you know, we're supposed to be talking about art and teaching, but (laughs) this is like, we can jump on our little soapbox for a minute. And a lot of this is woven into my artwork. A mm-hmm. lot of this, a yeah. lot of the artwork is in direct response to this experience that I had because mm-hmm. of, you know, becoming a mother and my postpartum experience. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like any experience like that, that's so jarring. And so, you know, like it's such a big part of your life for that time, it's, it's going to work its way into anything you're doing. And especially if you're a creative person, like, I mean, I feel like at least for me, I express through my art, these things. Absolutely. I mean, I immediately, as soon as I would go to a doctor's appointment and, you know, he would say whatever, and whatever I was feeling in that moment, I just immediately poured it into something in my artwork. I just immediately just, Mm -hmm. okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. And then I'll dump it right into my art. Yeah. Uh, And was that in the middle of that? Were you doing, because I think you just did like a hundred day project with your double exposures. Yes. So was that right in the middle of all that or? Yes. I started that in April, early April when I started the double exposures and I haven't stopped because it was done, I think in June, a hundred days is I think from April to June and Mm -hmm. I haven't stopped because I have learned so much about myself and I've learned, I've started to see how these other areas and these other things that I'm thinking about in my art are starting to seep into the photographs. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not always intentional. Sometimes I'm like, Oh, this, I could do this. And then sometimes I make a double exposure and I go, Oh, <laughs> look at that. That relates to my, my knit blanket because blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. I love how too with those, you know, every image has a story, but then when you're combining two, it, you know, it's not like it just adds the stories, the two stories together. It's like, uh, there's maybe a multiplication symbol in there. <laughs> like it, it adds so much more. It adds like a third or even a fourth story into it. Yeah, definitely. I see them it started off as me thinking that these two things were going to simultaneously happen and be valid at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then it turned into, which I think this is the beauty of art is that you can have one intention and then you make a thing and it becomes 
this whole other thing that you never intended and it informs you. So in, in the Mm -hmm. end, your work informs you about yourself. And I think that's the beauty. And that's what those double exposures do. They inform me of what I'm thinking, feeling on the inside. Yeah. Uh, I love that. And just the idea that your work is informing you. Yeah. yeah. My, one of my undergrad professors used to say that, and I always, I would always write it down in my notebook because I understood what they were saying, but I didn't understand with my body. Like mm-hmm. my, my head understood the concept, but I didn't feel it. Yeah. And do you feel like you do now? Oh yeah. In these double exposures, I feel it. Mm -hmm. I totally feel it. And I feel it in my other artwork too, like the, my needlework that Mm -hmm. definitely informs me. Yeah, for sure. And do you see those two as um, like the needlework and fibers and photography as connected? Yeah, I see everything. I was just writing about this the other day. I see my art as a triple Venn diagram Mm. where I have these three threads. I have poetry, I have the needlework, and I have photography. And in the middle is what I call the confluence of all three of them. And I feel like that's where I live because they're each these threads of me and my expression. And each one will overlap with the other two and then also be separate at the same time. So if you think about like a three circle Venn diagram and then just plopped each of my bodies of work into one of those, that's how I see my work. Uh. I love that. I'm, you know, obviously a visual person. So I'm like sketching the little Venn diagram. (laughs) I need to see it. It's the best way that I can describe it because Mm -hmm. I'm also a visual person. So to explain how they relate, it's like, well, you know, I don't even think I know how they fully relate yet. That's the work. (laughs) That's the work of the artwork is to do it and then find those places where they connect. Like that's the juicy part. That's the exciting thing about having three different, and I have more than three different bodies of work going on, but having three different modes of expression. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's the wonderful part of having three different modes of expression is to work on them randomly and then see how they come together. Yeah. And I have noticed and I love how there's also the aspect of like advocacy in your work. And I see it across all of those bodies of work, like with your photography, you're always sharing, you know, where was this made? What native land was this made on? With your textiles and beadwork, you share like these are not for sale. If you want to buy, please support native organizations and artists. Um, Yeah. So that was a conversation that my husband and I had about that work. So the my needle and fiber work when i do it it really is about my family and it's a, mm-hmm. for my family you know and so it feels 
if I show it, it was my thesis work. So it got showed in that form at my feet, but I haven't like, I haven't put any of that work in an exhibition and I haven't submitted it anywhere because I'm, it's, if I show it to you, it's a gift Mm -hmm. for me to show it because it really belongs to my family. I make it and it belongs to them because it's directly influenced by my family. And so I think that it's, it's been really, really important to me to share these artists who are making gorgeous beadwork mm-hmm. pieces that are indigenous and make their living off of their beadwork or their textile work. Right. And I, I want to make it very clear. My last name can be deceiving. Mm-hmm. You know, Driving Hawk is clearly an indigenous last name. And I want to make it very clear that I am a white woman making this work for my family because of my family in mm-hmm. order to hold these traditions and to continue to pass them on to my son mm-hmm. and our future children. Um, so that's why I always, I just decided one day that that needed to be included in on my website that the, these pieces are not for sale. So they're not for sale for two reasons. One, because these pieces are for my family. And two, I don't want to make money. I don't want to profit off of indigenous mm-hmm. work, like in, in indigenous um, design. Right. Because I am including Lakota. And it's always specifically Lakota because that mm-hmm. is my husband's tribe. That's... Um, when he said descendant from, and my son. And so it's always from that perspective. And so, you know, I wouldn't use anything Navajo because that's not directly related to my lived experience as a white mother of a Lakota, as a wife to a Lakota husband and a mother to a Lakota son. So it's very specific and I'm very intentional and it's, I'm very, aware that I teeter the line between appropriation and Mm. appreciation. But when I was in grad school, we, so my grad school experience was a low residency MFA where we traveled to different parts of the Americas. And we were in our first residency, actually it was technically our second, was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And Mm -hmm. That's actually where my husband's people are from originally before they got pushed further Mm -hmm. west into the Dakotas. And we were working with a Dakota woman who, well, there was two of them. We were working with two Dakota women who took us on the uh, tour, the Bedote tour of Minneapolis. And it's like a wonderful tour. If you're in Minneapolis or if you live near there or visiting there, look up the Bedote tour, Bedote mind map. I'll give you the information. Mm. Maybe you can link it in the notes. Yeah. It's really, and if you live there, you should definitely um, take the tour because you mm. really need to know whose land you're on <laughs> and yeah. do an amazing job. And that's such a, a place of high energy and emotion surrounding mm-hmm. the the meetings of colonizers and the indigenous peoples of the land. Mm. So anyway, I was talking with um, one of them and 
I, this was before, this was when my husband and I were talking about having children and I was, I was just freshly thinking about these things and I was talking to her about it and saying how, you know, my husband, um, this is like a whole nother conversation is blood quantum is something that we think about all the time and lucky for us, Lakota, they do lineage. So you don't have to have a certain amount of quote unquote Indian blood in you in order to be enrolled in order to apply to be enrolled. So it's more of a lineage. You have to prove that your grandfather or your grandmother um, is enrolled and which we can and we will do, which is important for um, our little fox. Yeah. But <clears throat> So we were talking to her and I was, I was explaining how, you know, just some of the things that I have seen my husband um, go through identity wise as somebody who is both, from European descent and indigenous descent. And knowing that when we have children, my children are going to struggle with that as well. And how do I, Mm -hmm. as a white mother, knowing that I contributed to their European descent, how do I raise and up, how, how do I raise them and uphold the cultures in which they belong to, but I don't, and sometimes can participate in and sometimes can't and Mm -hmm. didn't grow up with myself. And so I said, how can I be an ally? And she looked at me, or I, you know, I didn't ask how can I be an ally, but just some along the lines. And she looked at me and she was like, honey, you, when you guys have children, you are more than an ally. You are going to be a mother of a Lakota child. That is more than an ally. You have Mm -hmm. a great responsibility. And I was like, whoa. I mean, even as I'm... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Even as I'm saying that right now, I'm getting the chills and Oof. that just, it, it, it's still like, as I say it, it's like, oh, I just need to sit here a minute and remember that. Yeah. Uh, you're giving me some of those <laughs> chills too. Uh, and I, I don't really talk about my family a lot here. I guess I talk about my daughter, <laughs> yeah. but my husband is, uh, was born in Chile so I'm, you know, the white mother of a Latina little girl. So you get it. Yeah, trying to navigate that when, you know, my Spanish is not good, yet we want her to grow up being able to speak to her abuela and understand that culture. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's so right. And that <sighs> is something that we're also thinking about. My husband would like to be more fluent and like currently he's not and he mm-hmm. would like to be. And we wanted to be more fluent at this time before we started having children and we're just, we're not. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we need to do, we both know that we need to do more than just words here and there. So for example, you know, I'm, I'm mama Ina. Ina mm-hmm. is uh, Lakota for mama and he would be dada ate. So we say dada, but then we also include the ate and ate is um, Lakota for dada. So we, we are including these words, but we know that what's needed and what we need to do is to be fluent where we mm-hmm. can have a conversation yeah. Just need to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing to like, it requires you really committing and fitting that into mm-hmm. your life. And when it feels so busy, it can be really hard. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that maybe at a 
point when, so my husband is a fourth year, the summer should be going into his intern year. And then after his intern year, it'll be intern year is going to be, I, I will be, <laughs> I will be parenting 98% of the time. But I went yeah. into this knowing that this was what this was. Um, and he's yeah. gonna, he's doing good. He's going to do good. And it's, you know, we're doing this because uh, at one point he would really like to work for the Indian Health Service or mm. his, his dad currently does. Um, mm-hmm. Or we would like to go back to the reservation in South Dakota and um, he wants to serve in that way. So, yeah, like it's 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 for good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I just have to remind myself that. Right. When you're in the middle of that <laughs> journey. <laughs> yeah. So we're just we're thinking that maybe in a couple of years we can focus more on it mm-hmm. as a family. Because it's, I don't want to start it without him. Like he's an mm-hmm. important component. Like we need to do this as a family. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice that you can kind of, yeah, work together on it. I think that's been one of my challenges that um, for my husband, he's like, I already speak Spanish. Like, (laughs) you just have to figure it out on your own. (laughs) You got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I've, you know, I've taken lessons, I've gotten tutors and I just, uh, it's hard to learn a new language when you're old. (laughs) When you're old, right. Right. Which is why we were like, okay, we need to be as, you know, proficient as possible so that when we have children, then we can start, they can be bilingual and that's, yeah. that's happened, unfortunately. Yeah, but it will it in will. time. It will. It will. Uh, well, thinking more, we've talked a little bit about your work. I'm, I would like to get more into it, but then also I know. get to talk a little bit about your teaching. <laughs> yes, I want to talk about my teaching too. Yeah, maybe before we get to teaching, would you be able to talk more about like the, yes, you've talked about the content of your work a bit, but any... Yeah, what I would want people to understand about my artwork is mm-hmm. that it is, I know that I am, I'm making work that is difficult for some people to swallow. Mm-hmm. Because I am openly acknowledging that I come from this European descent that were the colonizers, that my family inflicted trauma on indigenous peoples. And to be honest, that is really hard for some of my family to swallow. Mm-hmm. And so because a lot of my work is about family, like that just adds a whole nother layer. Oh, yeah. And I am also, so I'm trying to honor who I am and I'm trying to think about the, the generational trauma that has been passed to me because of the previous generations not dealing with this thing mm-hmm. <laughs> that everybody keeps trying to cover up or hide or deny. Mm-hmm. And I want I, I want that to stop with me. I don't want to pass on colonizer trauma to my mm-hmm. children. And so I, I, I see this and I acknowledge this. And so at the same time that I'm, I'm trying to acknowledge this, I'm also trying to heal my personal childhood trauma 
my mm-hmm. experiences of being a child, because we, you know, if you're a parent, especially if you're a mother, I think you relive those early years mm-hmm. as you are parenting. At least I do. And I've heard this a lot from other mothers who aren't artists that they start having to face these traumas that mm-hmm. they thought that they were addressing. And then surprise, you have a child and it's like it comes back 10 times harder. And that's what I mean by my Venn diagram, how it kind of overlaps, but kind of doesn't overlap. But to be honest, I think that the childhood trauma that I am trying to heal, so I'm trying to heal this trauma that's been passed down to me, you know, from directly from my, my family that is alive and my family generations ago. So I'm trying to heal this trauma and then also acknowledge my husband and his trauma as well. Like, Mm -hmm. and I heal your trauma because it's like racism and all of this, I believe is something that white people need to fix. Mm -hmm. And so how do I, how do I heal this? for my family. And then I'll start to think about like, how do I heal this for outside of my family? But how do I heal this for my children? Yeah. How do I not pass these things on to them? And so it's that it's acknowledging and yet honoring who I am and embracing. Um, a lot of my work has a little bit of Lakota creation symbolism, and it has um, Celtic creation symbolism Mm -hmm. as well. So there's a a blanket that I made. And this was all before Little Fox. That's what we call my son. This was all before Little Fox was born. There's a blanket with the uh, Lakota creation symbol, and it's actually reversed. So there's a a right side and a wrong side to knit Mm -hmm. pieces. And on the right side, you actually have the wrong side of, you see the wrong side of the Lakota creation symbol. And then whenever you flip the blanket over and you look at the wrong side, and I love that they're called wrong and right side, Mm -hmm. you look at the wrong side of the blanket, you actually see the right side of the Lakota creation symbol. Mm -hmm. And that was done on purpose. That design was done on purpose. Because you you have to look at both sides, mm-hmm. and and that's not to say that I need to give excuses for the European descent um, in trauma inflicted trauma. But what I'm saying is, I if you are of European descent, you need to like face it. You need to look at it, and you need to be able to swallow it and heal it, so that we can move forward. Because everyone keeps saying, well, we need to move forward. That was years and years and years ago. But we can't. (laughs) We can't until we see it and we acknowledge it and we heal it. Yeah. So important. (laughs) Yeah. And there's just, I mean, I could talk about that work and and the concepts in my work Mm. forever. Because the more that I talk about it, the more that I learn about it too, yeah. because there are so many layers woven into the work. Things that, like I said, that I don't even know are there yet. Mm. But the more I make and the more I talk about it and the more I write about it, the more it comes out. So the more I layer on, the more I reveal. Uh, I love that imagery too, that 
I'm picturing when you say the more I layer on, the more I reveal, I picture like a heap of blankets, like, and you're just throwing more and more on there. But somehow as you do it, like it's creating the form of the thing. I just got the chills. Oh my gosh. I love (sighs) that image. Yeah. (sighs) Right. Like you've got just like a moment that's. Yeah. It's heavy. And I understand that my, my artwork is heavy and to be honest, I'll just say one more thing about it. I talked to my husband about this a lot too. Actually, the only people who have ever questioned me making this work has been, they have fallen into one kind of category, which I hesitate to say like, oh, these are the kind of people that have problems with my work. But it's just repeatedly, this is the the person that struggles to understand my work. And they're usually white academics. Mm. Um, And I asked my husband, you know, why, why, why do you think that is? I I have shown my work to um, indigenous academics and they have never, I have yet to receive caution. Mm. The only caution I received was just an acknowledgement that in some indigenous cultures, if you talk about the child before the child is born, you're kind of, you're like, you're jinxing it. Mm -hmm. And so that was the only way of caution. So then I went back and I turned back to Lakota tradition and, you know, what do Lakota believe? And there's this, you know, there's ceremony for children to bring children to this world. You create ceremony. Mm -hmm. And so that is how I view the work is that I am, I'm creating this ceremony in order to bring them, to bring our children earthside Mm -hmm. from the Milky Way. Yeah. So I just, I I just find that interesting. And I think as a white person, I'm allowed to say these things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's, I feel like it's important that we, you know, as white people that we notice and can talk about it and can like have the, the hard conversations that for us might be a little bit uncomfortable or for, you know, other white people might be a little bit uncomfortable, but yeah. you know, we're not the recipients of racism. Yeah. So we can be uncomfortable. That's okay. Right. Like that has to be okay. Right. Right. I mean, this is, I feel like this is the work I'm supposed to make. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, I grew up a, a people pleaser and this work definitely doesn't fall in the category of pleasing people. So <laughs> You know, I've, I've said this once or twice on the internet. I am accountable to my husband and my husband's family mm-hmm. because that's who this work is for. And so I, I, I check in with them and, and they encourage me to make this work. And that, that's what I need. Like that's who I am accountable to. Yeah. Well, would you want to talk a little bit more about your teaching? Yeah. And so we've already kind of talked about your, you know, preferring high school, but I would like to get into maybe tips, especially as I'm struggling to remember the title, but you're like leading the indigenous students group or facilitating that group. Yeah. Yeah. So that is my position. There's one at not every school district in the state has this program, but my district has this program and the name of it has changed a couple of times. Mm -hmm. It was called the Indian Ed Program. And now I believe it's called the Indigenous Student Program. Mm -hmm. 
and there's a parent committee, and then there is a person at each of the high schools who acts as the student advisor. So Mm -hmm. I run the club, the Indigenous Student Club on campus. And then I also, I just, this is my fourth year in this position, Mm -hmm. and I just got access to their grades. So part of, and the part of that is because most of the other people in this position at the other schools are counselors. So they Mm -hmm. automatically have access to grades and such. But because I'm a teacher, there are certain things that I don't have access to because I'm just a teacher. So I just got access to grades and such. And so it's like academically, if I see that somebody is falling behind, then I can, you know, I can call home. I can check in what's Mm -hmm. going on. What do you need? What can I get for you? Here are the resources I have. And, you know, that could be anything from a computer to a graphing calculator to helping fund to pay for the SAT or Mm -hmm. things like that or any kind of like fee that they have for school. And so it's, it's funded. There are two grants that fund there's, yeah, those are basically the two, there are two grants that fund this at the district level. And then, so there's a person, there's a liaison at the district level Mm -hmm. who I report to, and then she reports to federal programming because it's, that's what we're classified under as the federal programming. Mm -hmm. And so I will bring in, I try to do as little talking as possible because again, I'm very aware that I am a white woman and they don't need any more white women or white people (laughs) talking at them and preaching to them. They have that happening on campus all day long. Mm -hmm. So I try to bring in indigenous leaders in the valley to speak and share their experience. I have brought in my husband a couple of times to talk about his medical school experience Mm -hmm. and how it feels to still be the only indigenous student in a room full of 150 white medical students. (sighs) And, And that's often what a lot of these the, you know, what a lot of these students feel, they, mm-hmm. they tell me all the time, you know, I walk into the room and I look for the other person with brown skin mm-hmm. and then I go to that person and then I see where to go from there. Yeah. And so the club, and I try to make my room this as well, a place where they can just be and not feel like they have to fight off any microaggressions or any stereotypes or racism that might come their way. And they know that I'm really open and I tell them, you know, day one, especially when the new freshmen come in, I explain, hi guys, you know, um, this is Driving Hawk. I am not native. Yeah. I am not, but I am married into a family, a Lakota family. So, so I explain to them right off the bat mm-hmm. who I am. And, you know, I let them know that this isn't just something to do for me. This is very personal to me. I am not indigenous, but being here and supporting you is personal to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important for them to hear and understand. Yeah. And would you have any tips for teachers that are either, you know, looking to start this? It's, it's interesting to me hearing that there's federal funding of some sort. And I hadn't heard of this before. So unfortunately, I don't know very much about the federal Mm -hmm. funding. You have to apply for it that I know Mm -hmm. you have to apply for the two, these two grants every year. And I think there has to be a set program. Mm -hmm. There has to be like a a set program district wide. So I'm pretty sure it can't be school by school. Mm -hmm. But if you are in a school right now, 
and you know that you have a really large indigenous population, specifically native North, North American indigenous population, I think it's the title six, title six or title seven mm-hmm. is what it's called grant funding. And then there's the Johnson O'Malley funding. Those are the two. Then I would I'd dig deeper and see like, is there, is there a program that I don't know about? Or are there people located at all the different, uh, the other schools in your high school? And maybe your high school doesn't have a person, or maybe they do have a person and that person isn't really following through because that was the the case whenever I took on this position. Mm. The person who had it basically just allowed the kids to come to their room and do their homework. There was no programming involved, which Mm. I think is the most important part of the program is the the programming of bringing in guest lecturers to the classroom so that these students see themselves in the leaders across the board in the arts, in healthcare, uh, as lawyers, all of these professions that they need to know that indigenous people take up space Mm -hmm. in. So yeah, I would just say do a little investigating in that way. And if there isn't any way for the funding, if it's something that is important to you, just start a club and see where it goes. Yeah. That's kind of my... (laughs) Kind of my thing, like, okay, I'm going to start this and I'm going to see where it goes. Yeah. I'm going to see what happens here. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, I hope that was helpful. yeah, I think it is. And I can, I'll try to find some links to point people in the right direction. Same. Yeah. And then kind of a follow-up. So that's sort of one aspect of helping address any of these issues, but I'd be curious also for tips on just, you know, within your own classroom and your own teaching, how you can be an ally or be more than an ally. Yeah. So I definitely, I don't celebrate, I shouldn't say I don't celebrate, but I don't like Women's History Month, Black History Month, Indigenous History Month, or Native American History Month. Like those might come up on a PowerPoint where I'm like, happy Black History Month. But Black artists, Black Indigenous artists of color are just in my curriculum. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're, they're in there. It's not like a, today we are going to talk about this artist because they are, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, even if I've done a lesson five times, I always look at it to think, is there a new artist that I know about that can represent this subject better? Mm So a little story, tiny story. I think it was last year or the year before, I had talked a little bit about Ansel Adams, okay? Mm -hmm. Dead white guy. Yeah. Gorgeous photographs. And there are some amazing stories that go along with his photographs, specifically Moonrise Over Hernandez. And um, I, at the end of the semester, I had a question about him on our review game and I overheard and they work in tables to play the review game and I overheard a student say oh it's got to be Ansel Adams she loves Ansel Adams that's all she talks about (sighs) and I was like oh that was like a mirror held right in front of my face Mm -hmm. and I was like oh really like that (laughs) that that hurts because I think of myself as somebody who is has been an advocate for including black indigenous artists of color in my curriculum. And 
I think of myself as somebody who's like doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was such a wonderful reminder to check myself Mm -hmm. all the time still. And to check, is my curriculum as diverse as it could be? Did I learn about somebody new? And so I keep a Google Keep. Yeah. And I, if I'm at, if I'm, you know, perusing Instagram or if I'm at an exhibition and I come across an artist that a contemporary living, breathing artist that I think I would like to incorporate into the classroom, I'll write down their name and then a couple of notes about them. Mm -hmm. So then I have this, this piece of note sheet basically that I can refer to as I am reviewing my lessons before I teach it every year. Yeah. And then I can go, oh, well, this person, here are my notes about this person. I can put them in here. I can replace this person and put this person in instead. Yeah. It's a lot of work, but it's like, at least I know that my curriculum is getting more diverse. And I still include white artists and I still include dead white men because we go over the history of photography. And so that's where a lot of them, that's where it is a lot because we talk about how how photography was discovered and the progression of the camera and the progression of the film and how did there get to be film. And so I still include those aspects. But when I'm giving a lesson on a technique, that's where I'm like, okay, who who did it better? Or who did it, like, who can I find to replace this person that is no longer a living, breathing artist? Because it's important for all of my kids to see that artists are still working. This isn't art, isn't a thing that happened years ago. Mm-hmm. And then also something that happens with indigenous artists is that people think that quote unquote, Native Americans lived years ago and that there are no more Native Mm -hmm. people. I have had students in Missouri and I've had students in Arizona both ask me about my last name and my family because they thought that Native Americans died years ago, (sighs) that they were all gone. So it's just as important for my black indigenous students of color to see themselves as it is for my white students to see black indigenous artists of color currently working and identifying as black indigenous, (laughs) you know, like their culture and, or their, where whatever they self-identify is what is really important to share. And I, so a tip I would have is to sign up for adding voices lesson plans Mm -hmm. that, so I think you also took the conference in the summer. Yes. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yes. And I learned so much and I feel like I definitely lived in the camp of, I feel really comfortable talking about indigenous artists, but maybe not as, as comfortable talking about a black artist Mm -hmm. that changed for me when I took that, that conference, because I feel like I was given like these, these tips, which is to make sure that you include these, these pieces of information with your artists. It's not, it's not enough to simply say like, okay, here's Carrie Mae Weems, Mm -hmm. right? Here's her work. Mm -hmm. Well, why did she make this work, Mm -hmm. right? Why did you, where did it come from? Where is she located? Where all of that information that you would give naturally for a white artist, make sure that you're talking about that 
for your Black Indigenous artists of color. Mm-hmm. That is something that has shifted the the game for me. Yeah, like adding that context behind their work and who they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then also... I would say that in order to create an anti-racist environment, you have to actively be anti-racist in your life. Mm -hmm. There isn't a curriculum to follow. There isn't a formula to follow. There isn't a checklist to follow. This work has to be embedded into your everyday life. And it has to be something that you do Mm -hmm. because the kids know, like if you have a Black Lives Matter flag on your door or an LGBTQ plus flag on your door or in your room, they then expect you to follow that up with your actions. It's not enough to just have the thing in your room. Mm -hmm. What matters most are your actions. And they've told me this because they're like, it's a good thing and a bad thing. They kind of give me the dirt on all the teachers throughout the the school. And they're like, yeah, so-and-so has the flag, but let me tell you what she said today. Uh. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's very clear that it's, it's not about, it's, it's helpful to have that stuff hanging in the classroom, Mm -hmm. but your actions have to follow through. Yeah. So did you intervene when that student made a racist comment or do your students talk to you about racism? That's a biggie. When my kids start talking to me about their experiences across campus, I know that there must be a level of trust Mm -hmm. in me that they have, that they feel like they can talk to me, a white woman, a white teacher about race. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. It's a compliment. And yeah. How do you think you've built up that trust? Because I feel like, you know, what you're what you're kind of talking about is it's beyond like you are doing all of the things that you can check off, like you're, you know, diversifying your curriculum, trying to decolonize your curriculum. And I know there's there's issues as well with the, these terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then showing outwardly that you are advocating, but then, you know, what are the like little daily actions that you feel like you're doing and that teachers could be doing? Being vulnerable about where you are in your journey, I think is, which I'm sure teachers listening, like probably some of them have cringed like, ah, no, I can't be vulnerable with the kids. But I am so vulnerable in every part of my life. It's I'm such an open book. I'm like, oh, yeah, you want to know about that? (laughs) So I'm so I'm really vulnerable with them. And I let them know where I am. And then I'm actively working to be better. And then I'm always on this journey and that it's important to me and listening, listening to them is really important and standing up for them is really important. Mm -hmm. I had, yeah, I mean, I could give you multiple examples of just walking around the classroom and hearing a conversation where I can tell that another student is invalidating the experience of another student. Mm -hmm. And I step in and explain why that view could invalidate this other student and how it's, why it's not okay. And that those kinds of things aren't okay in my classroom. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't say anything to the student, you know, I didn't expect the student to have to, you know, take on that emotional labor. I just kind of stepped in and did it and and blocked Mm -hmm. it for 
that student. And then it's like, okay, so we, we get that now, right? And so it's, I think it's also not making the other student feel, and most of the times it's, you know, a, a white student feel like shame or mm-hmm. what I tend to try to do is say like, oh, well, here's something as, you know, your fellow white person, <laughs> here is something that I've learned and this is why it's not okay. And this is why we're not going to talk like this in my classroom, or this is why we're not going to talk about this in my classroom. And now you know better. And so let's do better. Yeah. You know, like it's kind of, I'm, I'm not, unless it's completely uh, hard and, and traumatic, I, I'm, I'm trying to keep that relationship with both students right. so that I can continue to reach the student who has this viewpoint that is inaccurate. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, which is tricky because on the inside I'm like blowing up, <sighs> but I can't. Yeah, yeah, it is. I do feel like it's challenging, but it's it's like our our role somehow to as you know as white people as white teachers to hold those emotions in ourselves and and try, like you said, to. To not, you know, make them feel more shameful or guilty because those are not helpful emotions. No, those are not no. going to like push them in the right no. direction. That's going to put up a wall yeah. and then they're going to go further into that, yeah. you know, whatever feeling that they were feeling and that's not helpful. You know, and I would say that I've learned this as being someone who has said things that were racist, you know, and I didn't understand that they were racist, Mm -hmm. but because of the way, because of the way that this person approached me, I felt like I was checked, but also that relationship stayed intact. So it it comes from personal experience because by no means am I perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just, you know, admitting that, like being upfront about that also, and like that this is a journey that I'm also still learning, like that's helpful. Mm -hmm. And I tell the kids that, and I think that that, I think that's what helps build that trust Mm -hmm. is that they know that they can come to me and say, you know, Mrs. Driving Hawk, this thing that you said this is why I wouldn't say it anymore, or this is how it made me feel. And that I'm going to legitimately listen and change my actions. You know, they're, they're going to see an actual change in my behavior because it matters to me. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of wrapping up, I like this question because it's really sort of open-ended. What are you curious about? right now. Oh my gosh. I am so excited about this question. (laughs) (laughs) This is probably my favorite question. I am really, really curious about the space between the things that we have systems to understand, like time and quantum entanglement and DNA and genetics and the unexplainable, like how do we heal generational trauma from the past? for our future generations. I like how the the simultaneous truth lives in the overlap of these two mm. contradicting things. Like you think science and faith must be opposites, but they're not. Like if you really investigate in each one of them, there's actually a lot of overlap. And the more that I learn about 
specifically Lakota traditional beliefs, the more that I see science and faith overlapping. Mm. And I am so interested in that space. I'm so interested in that space. Yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, fun, kind of silly question. What's your go-to order at your favorite restaurant? So because of quarantine, Mm -hmm. I simply miss... I love food. (laughs) Let me just start this by saying I love food. But every Friday we or Saturday, but it was, you know, every weekend we would go out to dinner with my husband's family. So that would mean his brother and his family, his sister and her family, and then my in-laws and us. And this was, you know, before Little Fox was born. And then my mom moved here. And so I was really looking forward to those family gatherings. And with Little Fox, after you know, I had somewhat healed mm-hmm. postpartum-wise, and as soon, I mean, I didn't even heal before quarantine hit, and yeah. we just we haven't we haven't had that time, that gathering, that family gathering that I just look forward to so much. Mm-hmm. And so I would say right now, my favorite, my favorite is anywhere that I can do that. Yeah, yeah. But if I had to choose, I will take a burger and tater tots and a lager any day. Yeah, (laughs) nice. (laughs) It's like comfort food. Yes, it totally is. I love it. Is there, I mean, this is a hard one because we just said like we could just keep talking, but is there there anything else, like anything you would kind of want to leave us with? Anything else I should have asked or that you wanted to share that we missed? Yeah, it is really hard because there's like a half a page of notes. That I, can <laughs> I know. Then I can start talking about. But I, I think what I'll say is that there's always something to be done in the classroom. And I'm a really big advocate of having a work-life balance. Mm-hmm. And my first year teaching, my department head told me there will always be something to do in the classroom. So do what you can and then go home Yeah, and be with your family. And so I've decided, okay, there will always be something to do on my to-do list. And I wasn't very good at leaving things on my to-do list. Like that was something that I had to train myself to be good at. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just decided there will be, there will always be something on my to-do list And I need to just put out the fires and then go home and be with my people. So I would say for anyone new, because I was kind of, I I wanted to answer that question. Anyone new to teaching or anyone trying to see, oh gosh, planning curriculum can just suck you Mm. in like, (laughs) and the hours go by quicker, I think sometimes Mm -hmm. than making art. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, put out the fires and then go home. Mm -hmm. That's really... And that's been really, really helpful for me. Yeah, I think that is really helpful advice to, you know, you might have your super long to do list, prioritize like what actually like really what are the fires what's burning right now what really Mm -hmm. needs to happen and what can kind of smolder for a while. Yeah, and then just be okay with it. Yeah, it'll be there tomorrow. Right. Uh, Yeah, that's really helpful. Is there anyone that you'd like to thank or give a shout out to? Yeah, so... First, I would like to thank you for 
inviting me here and creating this community. Oh, thank you. All of the episodes that I've listened to, everyone has been, you know, really vulnerable and has opened up about their experience. And I have felt less alone Mm -hmm. in every episode. Like, you you know, there's (sighs) something that connects me to each person. And I'm like, oh, okay, it wasn't just me. Mm. And it just makes me feel more confident in my story and being able to share my story. And so I just want to say thank you to you and to everyone who has shared thus far. Thank you. Yeah, that you're like bringing tears to my eyes. (laughs) Because that's, that's the goal. Like I want, you know, people listening to feel less alone. I do. I totally do. And then I would say my in my family, my in-laws and my mom, I would not be able to be a mom and teach and make art if it weren't for them. And then I would say lastly, my husband, because he is such a big supporter of everything that I do and the way that he supports the artwork too. He supports all of these areas of my life, but he also, with the artwork that has to do with him and our family, he's just, he's so supportive of and on board. And I often show him like, oh, here's this. And what do you think of this? And he's always willing to take a look at it and give me his truth. And that's what I need, his truth. And so he does that. I'm thankful for that. I love that. Yes. And having that supportive partner means the world. Like it makes such a difference. It does. It does. And last thing, where can our listeners connect with you online? Yeah. So my website is megandrivinghawk.com. So just my first name and then my last name.com. And uh, there's no H in my name. (laughs) My mom kept it pretty plain and simple. (laughs) M-E-G-A-N and then drivinghawk.com. On Instagram, I'm at mdrivinghawk00. So sometimes when it's written out, people think that they're O's, but they're not. They're double zeros. It's to stand for the infinity symbol. And then my kids have, we have a program Instagram and that's Perry's Finest Photos. Ah, cool. Awesome. And I will link to all of that as well. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Megan. This was such a wonderful, vulnerable conversation. And I really do feel like we need to just keep it going. <laughs> like We'll stop I, now, but <laughs> we'll have to keep, keep connecting. Same. I yeah. feel the same way. Totally. Yeah. And anybody who wants to continue the conversation, just message me on Instagram and yeah. I'm happy to chat. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.